the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. This is the Pro-America Report on The Answer, San Diego. Welcome, welcome, welcome. Ed Martin here on the Pro-America Report. We've got quite a bit to cover, and I want to encourage you again, as always, go to my social media, at Eagle Ed Martin on Twitter, and uh, follow me there, at excuse me, at Ed Martin on all the other social media platforms, and Ed Martin Live on Facebook. A lot of things happening. Um, I tell you, it's, um, it's, as I predicted, and you've been listening for a long time, it's a red tsunami. It's uh, coming in now. Uh, let me tell you a quick story. I've told this before, but um, the late, my late boss, the late Phyllis Schlafly, uh, was wonderful. I had lots of sage advice over many decades of experience. One of the pieces of advice was something that she and I shared, which is the experience of having run for office at a high level and lost. In 2010, I ran for Congress. I was the Republican nominee in a wave election. I almost won in a very Democrat district. In 2012, I was the Republican nominee for attorney general. I didn't almost win. It was a terrible year for Republicans. Obama was on the top of the ticket, and uh, um, uh, McCain was uh, – was it McCain? No, it was Romney. It was terrible. And so the bottom fell out, and we lost. Uh, but you learn a lot. And Phyllis ran twice for Congress, uh, once in her late 20s, I think it was, and maybe once when she was in her 50, 50 years old. But you learn how the system works. And you also, one of the things I describe is you learn to feel at a certain point how a cycle is going, how your race is going. And if you're doing well, you almost want more days to come. You wish there was more days till election day. I remember that's how it was in 2010. I had so many positive things happening. We were we, the uh, Columbus Day Parade was just a few weeks before the election, and it was in South St. Louis on the Hill, and it was like a carnival. It was the most amazing thing, people coming from all sides, encouraging us. And, uh, and so at this point in an election uh, cycle, you sort of feel where you are. You can see polling, and the polling is getting better every day for Republicans. Um, and right now, Republicans want more days. They want more days, and Democrats wish the election was yesterday. That's how it goes. Now, remember... All of a sudden, over time, more races become possible when it becomes clear that independents and even Democrats are voting in favor of the Republicans. And so suddenly you're talking, you're hearing people talk about something I said. I was saying 54 senators on the Republican side in the U.S. Senate. Some people are even saying 55. The race in New Hampshire, which I predicted a few weeks ago, would become close, and ultimately I think the Republican will win. Now it's on the national radar. And then on the House side, it's literally, literally uh, dozens and dozens of races that no one thought possible that are suddenly uh, races uh, for uh, an incumbent either to survive or an open seat that's supposed to stay in, in the Democrat Party. So it, it's a red tsunami like you haven't seen, and it's extraordinary. And the issues, um, I'm going to talk to him. I think uh, Jim Robb, I'll talk to him tomorrow. He's from over at Numbers USA, and, of course, their their specialty is um, 
immigration issues and how immigration affects America. They also do a lot of polling. I think they have a deal with Rasmussen, one of the polling outfits. I think it's Rasmussen. And so they do a lot of polling on, on what people think. And he's written a book on, on uh, Hispanic voters and how uh, they're moving. And it, I will talk with him about that. But it feels like the issues, inflation, schools not working right, the COVID breakdown, uh, all that kind of stuff it's all going in favor of the Republicans, especially crime. The stories about crime seem to be all over the place. Now, I think Fox News has been covering a lot of crime stories, but you get the point. Defund the police, et cetera, et cetera. And in the face of all that, you have a president, President Biden, who doesn't know what to do. He's not a communicator of any stature. He's a career politician, a, a sort of an incumbent, a, a politician. He's not a he's not a communicator, so he doesn't have a path to try to persuade people that well, give us a chance. You know, we're going to come back in. We got some new policies. Uh, if these things just kick in, you know, if we do a little, he's not doing any of that, and he's falling back on the only play I guess he knows, and that play is fear. And so on. What was it? Uh, let's see. What Wednesday night? On Wednesday night, he stood in front of this sort of, I don't know if the, I might be getting this uh, wrong. Is it neo-Gothic, neoclassical? Maybe neoclassical. The Union Station in D.C. It's just about five blocks from my office where, uh, where I, I'm, I am every day. I go, I go, I walk there all the time and big, beautiful building, you know, huge pillars and huge, ornate gray, high, high ceiling in the, uh, in the main area into the uh, train station where it's still a functional train station. There's a bit of a mall in there, but he gave a speech there. And he gave dramatically, this is the backdrop, Union Station. And his speech was all about fear. I, I don't know what he thinks. I'm not, I'm not sure how he's thinking. You talk about out of touch. His, his, um, his speech was about how everybody who disagrees with him politically is a threat to democracy. That's quite literally what he's saying. I'm not sure what that beeping is. Uh, and that's literally what he's saying. He's literally saying that there that you if you are a uh, disagreeing with him on policy, on politics, on party, you are a uh, uh, you are a threat to democracy. This was his closing self-proposed, self-described closing argument for the for the election. He said this is what he wanted to convey. I have no idea what that beeping is. I'll see if I can find it. There it goes. Stop. Um, this is what he wanted to convey to the voters and his speech as someone said, was even worse than Philadelphia. Philadelphia was sort of scarier. It gave you a you know red and black backdrop with military and all that. This one, some a couple of people pointed out, commentators pointed out that it was actually in some ways more frightening because he was basically he was he knows the election is going to go against him already, and now he's saying if it goes against him, the people that won are a threat to democracy. He's not just well, I guess he is. He's demonizing his enemies. But at this point in this president's uh, tenure, you don't think that his demonization stops at that. You think it goes on to uh, um, pursuing it. Again, one of the most dastardly things about the uh, about the situation. I got bells going now, too. One of the most dastardly situations, uh, 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 results of the speech in Philadelphia was when the president called people who disagree with him a clear and present danger, that's a call to stop them. Now, it's a call to limit the constitutional rights of people. If you're clear and present danger, your rights are limited. That was the Supreme Court decision, and maybe the Supreme, that Supreme, Supreme Court decision has sort of been overruled by that phrase. That's what it means. 
It means if someone's a clear and present danger, you have to stop them. That's what he's calling for. This is the president of the United States. And now just days before the election, he says, basically, if the bad guys win, they're a threat to democracy. Well, if someone's got power and has shown a willingness to use it against the people he thinks are clear and present danger, and he says if they win, they'll be a threat to democracy, what's he saying? And what would the moral charge be? You know, uh, General Bolduc, who's running for Senate up in New Hampshire, the Republican, uh, soon after the speech by uh, Joe Biden, he was on his way into his debate and someone took a swing at him and assaulted him. It was a guy was arrested. It's Joe Biden, as always, the projection racket and the Democrats who are calling for a mindset that is truly violent and evil. Well, that's what you need to know. All right, we got to go. We got to go because we got these great interviews coming up in a moment. We will uh, visit with uh, Mike Davis from the Article 3 Project and Allison Soman, a new guest who's over at Pacific Legal Foundation. Be right back. It's Ed Martin here on the Pro America Report. Back in a moment. Welcome back. Ed Martin here on the Pro-America Report. Time to catch up with Mike Davis. I was actually just picking Mike Davis's brain. He he wears a number of different hats. We'll get to some of his uh, current work, but I was thinking with him, he, he excuse me, I, he has worked in the Senate, in the executive branch, and also in the judiciary, and of course he therefore watches elections closely, and so I was asking him what he thought about this upcoming election. So, Mike, give me give me a, that thumbnail again of what we're talking about. Where do you think we are? And, and maybe differently, um, People seem fed up with the direction of the country. And then I think they're willing to sort of make the Democrats pay a bigger price than we've seen in a long time. I, I, I don't, don't know why that is. Yeah, Ed, thank you for having me on. I think Republicans are going to keep every Senate seat they have now, including uh, Oz winning in Pennsylvania to keep that seat red. I think Republicans are going to pick up uh, Nevada, Arizona, Georgia, and New Hampshire to get us to, to get Republicans to 54. And there is uh, even a possibility, it's an outside shot, but there's a possibility if, it, if it's a really, really big wave uh, next Tuesday that we're looking at picking off Washington and Colorado. So we could get up to 56 Senate uh, Senate seats for Republicans. How, how does that change the world? I mean, and I'm being serious. I mean, if you, I remember Mitch McConnell gave a speech once. She said the only thing worse than being in the uh, majority, uh, being in the uh, minority 59, 49 to 51 is being in the majority 51, 49, meaning how hard it is when it's that close. How does the world change when it's 56? Well, I mean, it, 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 it ensures that uh, that Senator Chuck Grassley, my former boss, mm-hmm. will become the Senate Judiciary Chairman again. And that means that President Biden's uh, judicial nominees who are outside of the mainstream and lacked and lacked bipartisan support will go to Chuck Grassley's political graveyard like <laughs> Merrick Garland's Supreme Court nomination did. So the, the nominees, bipartisan Nominees who are not radical will get through. They'll get a hearing, uh, but the the radical ones will not. And so that's why it's so critically important. One thing that President Trump was able to do very successful successfully with the help of Mitch McConnell and Chuck Grassley in the Senate is uh, appointing a record number of judges. Well, 
the issue is, is we broke so much China in the Senate to get that done as when I was the chief counsel for nominations to, to then Chairman Chuck Grassley. The Democrats are now taking advantage of that broken China, and they have their own assembly line of judges that they're getting through. And if Republicans do not take back the Senate uh, next Tuesday, you're going to see President Biden appointing two more years, four years total of federal judges, and they're going to flip back these critically important federal courts of appeals around the country uh, to, to Democrat control. They're also they, there's a good shot that they'll be able to appoint uh, maybe uh, one, maybe two Supreme Court justices and, and uh, take uh, take back control of the Supreme Court. So it is it is critical for constitutional conservatives to get out and vote next Tuesday. So we have a critical check on radical judicial nominees uh, in the Senate. Uh, we're talking with uh, Mike Davis. He runs the Article 3 Project, article3project.org. If you go over there, you can see a lot of uh, facts uh, about the judges and people. I think I think people, Mike, I think that people really missed, uh, did not see, and there wasn't much coverage of the fact that the Biden administration has, as you point out, uh, pushed through a lot of judicial uh, nominees, uh, a ton, actually, and, and uh, it's a big deal. Uh, okay, on to that for a second. Um, you, watch, you watch the Supreme Court closely. You clerked up there, um, and the term has started. I, before we get to some, maybe some of what's going on in the court, um, I went over there the other day. There were some protesters, but not much. It was back to sort of normal, it seemed to me. Um, why haven't we heard about who leaked? That's a very good question, and they have to get to the bottom of this. That The person, there's uh, the, the people who had access to a draft Supreme Court opinion along with the, uh, it's not just the opinion. It's not just the Dobbs decision overturning Roe versus Wade, the draft decision that a janitor or a marshal's aide or a you know Supreme Court police officer could have found on the the floor and given to Politico. Mm-hmm. It was it was the draft opinion along with the internal deliberations of the justices, and that that only could have come from the nine justices, which I don't think it leaked from the nine justices because they have to live with each other for the rest of their lives with their lifetime appointments. I, it, it had to have come from one of the justices. Each justice has four law clerks, and they have two or three administrative aides. So we're talking about a very small universe of people, you know, 60 people, 63 people from uh, whom this could have leaked. And they have to get to the bottom of this. I, I, I've seen the news reporting. I've, I've intentionally not had any discussions with anyone inside the Supreme Court about any of this because I don't want to get dragged into this. Uh, but uh, the, the, there have been uh, news reports that people have been interviewed. There's been some uh, other investigative tactics used, maybe some phones looked at. But they have to get to the bottom of this. This draft decision leaking led to justices protest at justices homes illegal home protest that merrick garland refused to uh prosecute it's obstruction of justice to threaten and intimidate uh supreme court justices or any federal judge outside of their home and uh and they, of course they get amnesty for that uh, because they're they're leftist and this is the biden justice department with with two sets of rules one for the left and one for everything else but so this draft decision leaked. It led to justices being removed to safe houses. It led to a 1 a.m. assassination attempt against Justice Kavanaugh, his wife, Ashley, and their two daughters. It's caused chaos. And it's frankly just for someone who I've, I clerk for Justice Gorsuch. I know how important it is 
to have confidence that these internal deliberations will not leak. You have to have nine justices and their four law clerks and their two to three administrative aides constantly working together, going back and forth on these draft decisions before they're released. And if the justices and their law clerks and their staff don't have confidence uh, confidence that this, these deliberations uh, will stay private. It's gonna it's gonna hurt the process, and I think that was the intent of this. I think this, frankly, I think it was one of the law clerks to one of the three liberal justices who thought that you know that this the, this Dobbs decision was life or death. You know how leftists think abortion is the end all be all to everything. So this is their religion. And their religion of uh, abortion was getting destroyed. And so they took this desperate measure to try to change the outcome and maybe even change the composition of the Supreme Court, uh, which, uh, you know, an assassination attempt is the natural and probable cause of leaking a draft decision like this. So uh, uh, we're talking with Mike Davis again, Article 3 Project dot org, Article 3, the number three project dot org website. So but uh, but Mike, um I, I mean, I know you don't want to speculate. You don't want to be drawn into it. And I know you've been very careful. I've had you on my show. I've heard you on other shows. You haven't gone and talked to people about this because you want to respect the, the, the court and the, and the process. But we're a long way from temporary now. I mean, I know you're good Irish, man. I mean, I, you know, why, are we ever going to hear? I mean, is it possible they're just going to stay? This is going to be one of those silent things. And, you know, a decade from now, someone's going to tell us what the story is. Is it possible it's after November because they didn't want to be in the I mean, after this November election? because they didn't want to be in the mix? You know, anything's possible. I think the problem is, is if you don't get to the bottom of it be, before these clerks leave, they leave their, you know, they, they switch out every June or July. If you don't get to the bottom of it then, what, I mean, what do you have left? What what leverage does do, does the Supreme Court police have mm-hmm. over former law clerks? They're not working for a justice. And so I've said that this needs to be handled internally by the Supreme Court, the Supreme Court police. They can maybe bring in the U.S. Marshals who work very closely with the Supreme Court. Uh, There's no excuse for not getting to the bottom of this. Frankly, it's it's a huge disappointment that they did not get to the bottom of this. uh, And the chief justice owes the public an explanation. This is not just an internal HR matter. This is about a separate branch of governments coming under attack. And it's uh, the, the integrity of the Supreme Court came under attack. The Chief Justice uh, uh, in the past has uh, very closely guarded the Supreme Court's integrity. And frankly, I think he's just not doing his job here. He needs to step up. He needs to do his job here. And I like the Chief Justice. I think, you know, I, I'm not one of those people who thinks the Chief Justice is some secret liberal. I actually think he's conservative. I think he's a good man. He needs to get to the bottom of this. He needs to have um, his Marshall get to the bottom of this and his chief of police at the Supreme Court get to the bottom of this. And if they can't, they need to bring in other law enforcement agencies to get to the bottom of this. Uh, we're talking with Mike Davis. Mike, let me slide over to a press release from a few days ago that you put out. And it's uh, maybe it was actually a piece that you either were quoted in or, or read over at the Daily Caller. But be that as it may, your, your quote was, hey, um, if, the, if the Senate switches, you're going to have uh, Senator Grassley and Judiciary Committee and Senator Johnson uh, in the uh, permanent subcommittee on investigations. Um, and you said, that, you know, time to go go figure out what's going on with FBI and DOJ. Um 
you know, you you care a lot about a number of issues. I've heard I've talked I've heard you talk and lead on the issue of tech uh, and the problems around big tech and the dominance of big tech, which we see closely. And I guess it's overlapping as part of your point. There's plenty of DOJ or at least uh, FBI and other involvement in the in this um, Lee Fang coverage over at the Intercept on the on the collaboration between big tech and and uh, the and the federal government. But um, what 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 assurance? sort of and it may not be real yet but what assurance can people have that it'll be different this time i mean we've seen republicans with power and good guys and good gals good people that want to get to the bottom of it, and it just feels like you they get boxed in by uh the system and it sort of goes the way of the soundbite well you've seen with both senator chuck grassley my former boss and senator Ron Johnson, these are two dogged investigators in the Senate. They're the ones who have been systematically uncovering the FBI, the intel communities, the Biden uh, regimes, the Obama regimes, uh, Russian collusion hoax, the corruption at the FBI. Chuck Grassley has done congressional oversight for decades. He's the best in congressional history on this. Uh, he has a, a a big congressional oversight team, and they are dogged. They are very effective, and they the difference between this time and when they took over uh, when uh, when when Republicans had the Senate in two thousand seventeen. Republicans did not have unilateral subpoena power back then. You had to have Democrat buy in in order to get subpoenas. And Dianne Feinstein, the top Democrat, the ranking member on the Judiciary Committee. Uh, Frankly, it was a huge disappointment. She was just very partisan, which is not her normal style. She's usually bipartisan, but she, her staff and her colleagues dragged her very far to the left. They dug in and they would not go along with many of uh, then Chairman Chuck Grassley's subpoenas to get to the bottom of this. Now, fortunately, they've changed the Senate subpoena rules where if you're in if you're in the majority, you have subpoena power like they do in the House. You don't need on the Senate Judiciary Committee. You don't need um, Democrat buy in anymore. So that's going to be a huge difference. And uh, so Chuck Grassley will be able to get his subpoenas as the chairman. They're going to be able to get to the bottom of this. And it's it's going to take some time because the FBI, the intel community, uh, they're so corrupt. They're they're rotten to the core. And, you know, they are willing to lie and, and hide evidence and do whatever it takes to avoid public scrutiny. But Chuck Grassley, again, he's dogged. He will get to the bottom of this. Uh, and the ultimate goal here is there needs to be serious, serious reforms to the FBI and intel community, church-style commission, where they rip apart a lot of these powers that we gave the FBI after 9-11, which was just, you know, at the time I supported it, I I, I bought into the to the hype. But now I just realized that it, it was such a mistake to give the FBI and the intel community so many powers after 9-11. And you're going to see some serious structural reforms at the FBI and the intel community once uh, Chuck Graff is done. Mike, um, when did that change? When did the subpoena power uh, shift? It used to be that requirement. You mentioned Feinstein. I remember that pretty vividly. She was able to slow walk and you ended up sort of negotiating over lots of things. When did that subpoena power, when did it change in the House and Senate? It took it, it took a long time, and I, I'd have to go back and look. It was it was it was I think it was like 2019 or 2020, mm-hmm. and they were able to get a lot of information that uh, after that change. But it was just it, it was just too late, yeah. right? So um, because the FBI, the intel community, just just dragged their feet, right? And then the issue is is that uh, you can 
you can file a lawsuit and, and, and sue as the committee chairman as the, and sue to get this information, but it just takes so long and they just ran off the clock. And yeah. then Democrats took out the, took over well, the Senate. But Yeah, well, I think one, one important detail is um, I used to think until a little, not so long ago that it was a requirement all the time that you had to have the ranking member sign off. And uh, someone made the point you're making, and especially on Judiciary Committee, that change is hugely powerful. I mean, it changes the dynamic completely. I mean, you of course, as you point out, you're dealing with uh, you'd have to vote on contempt of Congress and send it over to DOJ. So you can sometimes find, as you, you say, you're running out the clock. But uh, but still, it's important. That might be an issue, uh, uh, Mike, that uh, people would benefit from the background on. I don't need to assign the Article three project backgrounders, but that would be a good one to know some of the details on when that happened, because I think people fear that you're going to end up with a chairman of the of the House Judiciary Committee negotiating with, you know, Adam Schiff or whoever the heck would be in the in the judiciary and, and Jeremy Raskin about uh, who we can subpoena when they're like, just, you know, you can't deal with these people at this point. They've shown they're in the, uh, in the opposition in a way that's different than we've ever seen. So, all right, Mike, I got to run Mike Davis, article three project.org article three, the number three project.org. Thanks, Mike. I appreciate it. Thank you, Ed. All right. We'll take a break, everybody. And we'll be right back. And I'll put up on social media, some links to those, uh, to the website and also some of the, um, uh, the uh, facts on subpoenas that I was mentioning. We'll be right back. Ed Martin here on the pro America report back in a moment. Welcome back. Welcome back. Ed Martin here on the Pro-America Report and very interesting guest upcoming. I've been uh, looking forward to it. A couple days ago, I was sent a press release and I was watching this. I was thinking, wow, this uh, topic is really important because when Joe Biden said we're going to forgive student debt, everybody said, wow, what a story. And then most normal people said he can't do that. It's not legally permissible to do that. How's he going to do that? And we all sort of said, well, someone will sue. Someone will object someone will come in and say what's the story here well the pacific legal foundation with uh, we've had some of their attorneys on with us has stepped into that uh space and said wait a second you you can't quite do that our next guest is allison soman she's a legal fellow over there at the center for separation of powers in the dc office uh, she's uh, been uh, practicing law for a number of years also served as a special assistant over at the united states commission on civil rights and uh, done a bunch of other stuff too as well as um, uh, being a mom and uh, and having a, a golden retriever, which is important to me uh, to tell you, Allison. So welcome to the program. How are you? Thank you so much. Doing well. So first of all, um, what what when you're you sit there and saw when you saw the Biden administration do the student debt cancellation program, you said, well, that's not going to uh, uh, not going to withstand scrutiny. They say we get a court, but you still got to go to court. How do you go about how'd you go about ending up where you are in this case? And what's what's the likely sort of uh, sequence of events? Sure. So I want to be clear, this is a Pacific Legal Foundation case, but I'm not personally one of the attorneys who's part of that litigation team. Right, I right. can tell you, though, a little bit about their process. Gotcha. Um, so I think there was widespread agreement, even from people who are usually very supportive of President Biden politically, that there were legal problems with the student debt loan relief um, measure. Basically, the statute that he was using to citing to support it, the Heroes Act of 2003, um, allows some measure of allows the Department of Education to grant some measure of measure of relief in emergencies. 
this was passed during the height of the Iraq war. And so I think they were mainly thinking, well, what about soldiers who literally can't pay their student debt payments because they're in the middle of a war zone, that kind of emergency. Right. Nonetheless, Biden went ahead and cited COVID as the emergency that would allow him to do across the board debt relief for a number of people earning under a certain threshold amount of money. If he tried to do this in, say, April 2020, when the COVID crisis was at its height, it might have made some sense. As it was, though, he was doing this two years into the COVID crisis. When people, many people had gotten vaccinated, had gotten COVID and gotten some immunity from there, and there are therapeutics widely available, many places are reopening, and many people are not wearing masks anymore, are going back to living their everyday lives as they did before COVID. There have also been other... Um, yeah, no, please. I'm sorry. Going, please, no, no, keep going. no, no, please, please keep going. Okay. So... Given that background, um, it seems like this debt loan relief program wasn't really at all about alleviating the kind of emergency that's contemplated by the HEROES Act, but was instead about achieving a policy priority that Senator Bernie Sanders and other progressive Democratic can, um, had wanted um, to shore up their political base because it's politically popular and what have you. That said, um, the problem became, despite the sacral argument, how do you challenge this in court? Ordinarily, um, in order to sue under the U.S. Constitution, you need to be able to show that you've had an injury, in fact, um, that is that you've been made worse off by the defendant's actions in some ways. And most people who are getting debt loan relief, they, um, while this may be injurious to the entire country, it drives up debt loan relief. At their point, from their perspective, it seems like things are pretty good. Uh, One small exception. Yeah, yeah, please go. Keep going. That's what I was going to get to. Go ahead. I, I'm sorry. Keep going. Okay. Um, so one small exception to this, um, there is a different student debt loan relief program uh, for people who work in public service, including attorneys who work for a qualifying nonprofit. Basically, if you pay down your debt steadily after a certain period of time, um, I believe it's 10 years, the government will wipe out all of your debt in recognition um, of your public service and that and that debt loan relief is not taxed. I see. One of um, because Pacific Legal Foundation is a nonprofit. One of our attorneys, Frank Garrison, had been enrolled in that loan forgiveness program. Oh. As it happens, Frank lives in Indiana, which is one of, I believe, about six states that would tax recipients of the Biden loan relief hmm. on the loan forgiveness. But as I understand it, Frank would not have been taxed if he'd simply stayed in the public service loan forgiveness program and gotten this different form of forgiveness later. Hmm. So Frank is one of a relatively small number of people who are directly harmed by Biden's loan forgiveness program. Frank also cares a lot about the separation of powers and constitutional legality and believes that this program was was illegal as structure. So, so what Frank has, yeah, represents. So, so, so what? So what happens next? You fi- This was a file. This was a, the filing said stop this now, right? Until full litigation right. can go forward, right? Right. 
and then it will go forward. So and it'll, the, it'll take it'll take a long time to go through. I mean, I mean, to go through all this. Uh, I guess what's the likelihood that you win on this? Stop it now. Is it does everybody feel? Have you looked at the pleadings? I didn't look at them to see. So the so the complaint has been winding its way through the federal courts. The district judge um, denied our initial request for relief. We appealed that to the Seventh Circuit, mm-hmm. and that was denied. Um, we then went to the Supreme Court on an emergency motion uh, to try to have Justice Barrett uh, temporarily block the student debt loan, debt loan relief program. Uh, that was also denied. Um, one of the monkey wrenches that was thrown in was that the Department of Education had never maintained before our lawsuit that you could actually opt out of the relief program. It decided the day of the lawsuit and informed us in a pleading filed in the district court that it was now creating an opt-out program. While that might make some sense from a policy perspective because it would give relief to people who are in Frank's position, the problem is that it's really not good policymaking to make policy like this in response to lawsuits. I'm additionally concerned that there have been other modifications to student debt loan relief program that have been made in response to other lawsuits. This is not how you want to make policy. You, the government should ideally be making policy through careful deliberation, through consideration of all alternatives. It shouldn't be making these kinds of policy decisions because it's worried about getting students trying to duck lawsuits and the court shouldn't countenance that kind of behavior by dismissing litigation. Uh, we're talking with Allison uh, Soman, and she's over at the uh, Pacific Legal Foundation, specifically in the Center for Separation of Powers. If I may leave behind a little bit the specifics of this case to say um, sort of in this moment we're in, um, I don't think most people realize how much the, the executive branch has swallowed up uh, power and, and has a, sort of obtained power to itself. Wouldn't one great fruit, maybe you're excited about this, uh, of a split government where Congress was Republican and was antagonistic to the Democrats. What, couldn't one great fruit be that ar- the Article One Congress decides to pull back some of its power? I mean, wouldn't that be exciting? Because I don't see it. You know, you mentioned all these things and some people say, and I've told them, you know, Joe Biden and his team may say, well, it'd be stink to not have Congress, but we'll just do things we want anyway and we'll see how much we get away with. And, and a lot of it they will. So I agree with you that Congress's refusal to try to push back on executive branch overreach is a big problem. And I hope that in the future they do more, not just in the context of student debt loan relief, but in lots of areas where there's big, big picture administrative overreach to try to try to stop this kind of behavior. I agree. It's a big problem. It's um, yeah, it's going to be interesting to see if, if, it, if it becomes something that say I, I, a Republican can seize on. So um, it's uh, because I, I, my, from where I say, that you, you can either do nothing, obstruct, and and then things will continue to move. For example, on the border, there are laws on the books that are just are being ignored by the executive, but executive branch. Uh, and by the way, this happened to this happens under Republican administrations. I mean, that's one of the things I guess, Allison, you would say is uh, earlier you commented. This is not a problem of just one party; it's both parties and sort of power, right? So I'm 
I'm less familiar with the exact dynamics on the border, but I agree with you that overall, um, both parties overreach in different ways, and it's a genuine problem. Cong- and Congress needs to stand up and, and do and do its job. It needs to stop it, stop and check the executive branch. Yeah, well, it's it's very. Thank you for coming on the show, and especially thanks for uh, uh, in this on this issue being out there. I mentioned that uh, Allison Soman is our guest. She's a legal fellow at the Center for Separation of Powers. I'm a big fan of uh, of this uh, argument. Of uh, there's a lot of places I noticed you and I shared a internship early in our careers. I was also at the Institute for Justice. Those folks do interesting work on a lot of different issues. And a lot of times it comes up against the power of government to manage licenses and economic freedom, uh, economic economic liberty. So anyway, thank you, Allison, for coming on. We'll put all this up on social media and keep people informed. And we wish you well. Wonderful. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thanks very much. Uh, again, Allison Soman was our guest, and I will put up on social media all the links uh, to the information over Pacific Legal Foundation. And we will take a break, and we'll be right back. It's Ed Martin here on the Pro-America Report. Back in a moment. This is the Phyllis Schlafly Report, a daily broadcast from Phyllis Schlafly Eagles. And we're upholding the legacy of Phyllis Schlafly, grassroots activist, author of 27 books, and articulate voice for traditional values for more than 70 years. Now, here's the president of Phyllis Schlafly Eagles, Ed Martin. I may not be the world's leading expert on the latest TikTok trends, but some of these recent fads are showing an unhealthy view of the workplace to many American youth. Unsurprisingly, many are outgrowths of the government's decision to shut down businesses during COVID-19. The first of these trends is called quiet quitting, where influencers challenge their followers to do as little work as possible at their jobs without getting fired. A second trend is called act your wage, which calls for workers to only put in as much work as they feel is justified for what they're paid. Both of these viral fads put impressionable young people at a disadvantage in our free market system. If someone lives in a communist country where workers are paid the same amount, no matter how hard they work or how much they innovate, then it stands to reason that you might as well work as little as you can get away with. However, our founders wisely gave us a free market system where those who excel will naturally rise to the top. Critics would say that I'm painting an idealistic view of capitalism, that big, powerful corporations suppress individual achievement. Without a doubt, there are many such companies out there, both big and small. However, the solution is not to relegate yourself to a life of mediocrity and unfulfillment. The solution is to simply not work for one of those toxic companies. The businesses that are thriving the most are the ones that reward the efforts of their employees and let the hardest, smartest workers rise to the top. If every workplace you go ends up being a toxic workplace, then I've got news for you. The workplace isn't the problem. You're the problem. Our nation has outpaced every other nation on the planet in innovation precisely because our economic structure caters to human nature. You can try to reject that nature with quiet quitting or acting your wage, but those are the paths to misery and hopelessness. Young people of America, embrace the spirit of the American work ethic and watch out for those awful TikTok trends. This has been the Phyllis Schlafly Report from Phyllis Schlafly Eagles. It's no secret that globalists are bent on destroying Western culture. Whether the threat comes from inside or outside our borders, America must be protected from cultural Marxism and those who would deny American sovereignty. We're seeking your insight at phyllisschlafly.com. That's phyllisschlafly.com. And join us again for the Phyllis Schlafly Report. 
Welcome back. Welcome back. Ed Martin here on the Pro-America Report. Hey, I'm finishing up today with some praise. Praise for a Democrat. Praise for an inner city Democrat. Are you ready for that? I rise today to praise Mayor Bowser of Washington, D.C., who I have not praised and do not really respect on a whole bunch of issues. But I have to tell you on the issue of Norcan, Norcan is a drug. Excuse me, I'm mispronouncing it. Narcan. Narcan is an incredible drug that was designed to counteract fentanyl overdose and narcan if it's used in a timely manner you gotta use it right away if somebody's overdosing on fentanyl it literally snaps them out of it now my brother is the marine you know we talk about my marine corps brother he as as a firefighter now up in massachusetts he's trained extensively for overdoses because of course fentanyl coming from the chinese uh the evil evil chinese regime sending us fentanyl through the evil evil mexican cartels is killing over a hundred thousand americans every year and it's an epidemic. But if you have Narcan, it's literally you can if someone's if someone right now knocked on your door and said, uh, there's someone overdosed in the in the front yard or a block away. What can you do? And I'd say I have Narcan. I'd run there. And if you give it within a few minutes, 10 minutes, five minutes, whatever, you can literally snap them out of it like, like that. So I went to get it in D.C., excuse me, in, in uh, Virginia and at a CVS. I'm sorry, CVS. But your guy behind the counter said, oh, no, sorry, you need a prescription. I said, no, no, I looked online. You don't need prescription anywhere. And they said, no, no, we, we require a prescription and we have to order it. I said, well, that's terrible. And I said, okay, I'll regroup and see what I can do. And I happened to go into the office and I was walking around the office in, in D.C. up on Capitol Hill. I went for a walk. It was a nice day. I felt like I should get out. And as I walked around, I saw there's an old pharmacy there, like a family pharmacy. I went inside. I said, could I get some? Do you sell Narcan? And they said, oh, I, I, we don't sell it. No, we give it away. I said, what's that? They said, we give it away. There's a program that the Washington, D.C. Uh, government does. And you get it for free. All you have to do is give your name and your date, date of birth so they have a record and you can have it for free. And I walked away with three packages of two hits of Narcan. It's a nasal spray. And I got to tell you, it's so stupid that you have to try get, that CVS in, in Virginia doesn't know. But God bless D.C. And I got to tell you right now, I'll talk more about this. I'm running out of time. But you should go and get yourself Narcan. You should get yourself Narcan and have it. If something happens in your neighborhood, in your building, and whatever, you have a way to do it. It doesn't take any effort. It doesn't take anything small. You don't have to do inject anything. It's a nasal spray. It's sprayed in somebody's nose. If you think that, if you think they had an OD, even if they didn't, if it was something else, it doesn't do any damage. I'll talk more about this. Uh, I, I promise. I'll come back to it. So, congratulations to Mayor Bowser of Washington D.C. You get my praise and thanks. All right, we got to run. Thank you also to Noah Dingley, our producer. Joanna Spilger, associate producer. We will be back tomorrow. It's Ed Martin here on the Pro-America Report. Talk to you then. This is the Pro-America Report on The Answer, San Diego. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. 
The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal record to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.